Hi, listeners. It's Risa dropping in, and for the month of August, we're playing some episodes from the Visible Voices archives. August is Civic Health Month. It's a time to showcase the link between voting and health and celebrate efforts that ensure each and every voter has the opportunity to support their community's health at the ballot box. The reality is that 80% of health outcomes are determined by non-clinical factors, such as access to food and access to affordable housing. The Visible Voices podcast and Vote ER invite you to celebrate with us this upcoming August. Commit to action during the fourth annual Civic Health Month or join the free virtual Civic Health Conference. Let's get to the episode. Hi, listeners. Thank you so much for joining. And in today's episode, we're speaking uh, about the terms and the theories of Dr. Jennifer Joy Freed with Dr. Jennifer Joy Freed and my friend, Mr. Kevin Webb. Kevin and I attended college together. And in fact, in our senior year, we TA'd a sociology class together. He's a higher education training professional with specialization in Title IX compliance and gender-based violence prevention. He's developed content for online Title IX and sexual misconduct training and helped implement this in a cross-section of colleges and universities nationwide. Jennifer Freed is a researcher, an author, an educator, and a speaker. She's best known for her theories of betrayal trauma, DARVO, institutional betrayal, and institutional courage. She's the founder and president of the Center for Institutional Courage, Professor Emeriti of Psychology at the University of Oregon, Adjunct Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences in the School of Medicine, Faculty Fellow at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research, and Affiliated Faculty in the Women's Leadership Lab at Stanford University. Now, as framed for today's episode audience, I want you to think about discriminatory behaviors in the workplace. Within that circle would be sex and gender discrimination. Within that circle would be sexual harassment comprised of sexual coercion, gender harassment, and unwanted sexual attention in the workplace. Now, we don't have to work hard to find present examples. And in fact, there was an article in the Boston Globe uh, on sexual harassment, and the title of the article was Three Graduate Students File Sexual Harassment Suit Against Prominent Harvard Anthropology Professor. We also don't have to look far to see examples of DARVO, and I'm going to tell you what DARVO is in a second. Uh, And this was in the Financial Times and an earlier article in the autumn in the New York Times about the German media giant called Axel Springer. Uh, The title of the article in the Financial Times was Women Spoke Up, Men Cried Conspiracy, Inside Axel Springer's Me Too Moment. Now, in the conversation, you're going to hear me refer to the 2018 NASIM report. This is entitled Sexual Harassment in Academic Science, Engineering, and Medicine. The study examined the prevalence and impact of sexual harassment in academia on the career advancement of women in the scientific, technical, and medical workforce. Now, I want to define DARVO. It's an acronym. It stands for Deny, Attack, and Reverse Victim and Offender. It's a perpetrator strategy where the perpetrator may deny the behavior, attack the individual doing the confronting, and reverse the roles of victim and offender. In doing so, the perpetrator adopts the victim role and accuses the true victim of being the offender. Let's get to the Trey interesting conversation where when we begin, Jennifer is describing a bit of her terms, her theories, her research, and where we may see more severe instances of this. You see 
institutional betrayal in pretty much all institutions, certainly all universities. But I also, well, that's true. I also think there are matters of degree and there are some places where it's really worse than other places and institutions can improve. And the thing I lose the most sleep over actually is it's not just the institutional betrayal. It's the fact that if we don't trust our institutions, our whole society is in terrible trouble. Like, how are people going to get help if they don't trust their institutions? How are we going to have a democracy if we don't trust our institutions? And sometimes I worry by calling out institutional betrayal, I'm like, I'm contributing to distrust. And I'm like, no, but distrust is a problem. But then where I come down is, well, trust has to be earned. And people have a reason not to trust. So although the distrust is a terrible problem, uh, institutions have to earn that trust back by good behavior, not by saying like, oh, trust me because you should trust me, but by actually behaving in a trustworthy way and demonstrating it. And it's hard. I've seen, especially Title IX coordinators, I'm sure you've experienced this. I've seen Title IX coordinators do the right thing and still not be trusted because it's like a mountain to climb to get past that distrust. I'm so glad you brought up this concept of severity uh, because it, it, it was anticipating a question I had wanted to ask you, you know, are some places worse than others? Are certain industries, certain fields, certain types of institutions worse than others? Where is it more severe? Um, industry, location, places? I mean, whatever details you might be able to share with us, with the audience. Yeah, so um, I don't think we have systematic data to answer that question in the way that we, we should um, figure out how to get that. And it's one of the reasons I, I founded a nonprofit that has a research focus is there is so much we don't know that we need to know. And, you know, if you're trying to, to cure some problem, basic research really can help. And think about trying to cure cancer without doing research on cancer and without researching potential interventions. And right now we're in the situation where our institutions are in trouble and we just lack some really basic research on, for instance, where's the worst institutional betrayal? What I can tell you is that we have been observing and thinking about this for quite a while and have certainly have some hypotheses and hunches. So one factor that seems to really make a difference is very high prestige institutions are susceptible to a lot of bad behavior because they can get away with it. And part of what happens is this inability to to leave the system, to confront the system. So some of the most prestigious institutions have some of what we've observed, some of the worst, most egregious kinds of institutional institutional betrayal. There, there's also the, uh, an issue about how hierarchical an institution is, because in the end, betr- institutional betrayal and interpersonal betrayal are about power and using power in certain ways. And I, I think that power both makes it easier to betray, but it also it also um, maintains the inequality um, because the betrayed person is is kept under, kept down. Um, so, so when you have systems where you've got somebody really on top and, you know, a, a steep hierarchy, that's a place we would expect to see more of this betrayal than more egalitarian, flatter, flatter systems. Um, there's also opportunities. So, 
you know, one of the most egregious places for certain kinds of betrayal, interpersonal betrayal, and then institutional occur when the person in power has the opportunity to abuse and, and use that power. So for instance, coaches, especially in sports where, where part of what they have to do is be maybe touching the athlete's body. Um, doctors in an exam room, where, you know, it's part of the job to be touching that person's body and what that can lead to so easily is abusing that power. It's interesting because where you see Darvo seems to me to be related to where you also see more of this institutional betrayal. It's, it's also a way to, it's basically a way to defend the status quo, right? Anyone who's questioning the system gets put in their place right away by being attacked and then being dis- and, and that attacks often of their credibility. They're told that they haven't remembered correctly or they're doing it for some ulterior motive or they're crazy or whatever it is. Um, and then they're put into this role as if they're the offender um, and the person being accused or system being accused is the poor victim in the situation. And it, it's really, people get really paralyzed by this. We did research showing that when individuals get darvoed, they're the recipient of a darvo response, they're more likely to blame themselves. So it's effective. And we did another study where we had third parties essentially read about an interpersonal event. And when the perpetrator used darvo, these people doubted the victim's credibility. So that, so it worked. And that's scary. The good news was we also looked at what happens if we teach people about DARVO. And when we taught them about the concept, they were less susceptible to its effects. Jennifer, like what role or what is your knowledge regarding the NASM report? Yeah, so I think that report's really amazing. And um, I've been serving for the last few years on a follow-up advisory committee um, for NASM. That's sort of like, okay, we did the report. Now let's try to take it to the world and change things. And it's, uh, there's a group that has many words in it, but it's like the action collaborative for ending sexual harassment in in higher education, something like that. And I'm on the advisory committee. Um, Before that, I knew the report was in process. I was once invited to spend a day with um, the group putting the report together and talk about my work. Um, But I didn't really see the final version until it was published. And I just thought, wow, this is so, so different. And I think back to when I was in graduate school and this was, we didn't even have, I think the term sexual harassment existed in a legal context when I was in graduate school, but none of us knew it. None of us had that term. And it really wasn't until um, Anita Hill was testifying. I think that the world really, you know, that was the, the moment I think the world began to understand the concept with the term. Um, and to, to think that, like, it was just normal in a way. Like, I mean, it still goes on terribly, you know, too much. But the difference was when I was in graduate school, it was like, it wasn't hidden. It was, it was just every was all the women were exposed to it and all the male professors not all obviously but it was just so common um so i do think that that has changed some and that the report's going to push us even further in in a good direction but of course you know the follow-up really matters too yeah so uh 
interested to get your thoughts on this. Uh, when I think about the higher education context and I think about graduate school, from my experience, there's a different way in which things play out uh, in graduate programs, particularly doctoral programs, versus the kinds of things you might see in a Title IX office at the undergraduate level, right? So we're at the undergraduate level, you know, it's a lot of, you know, there's, you know, dating and domestic violence and, and sexual assault, uh, sometimes also harassment by, say, professors. But I think there's a there's a particular way it plays out or seems to play out in graduate programs because of the power dynamic. There's a particular power dynamic where if you are um, studying something that's highly specialized, right, and this particular professor may be the only professor who can advise you in this area. Um, so therefore, they now have maybe an inordinate amount of power over you. Um, and this plays out in a lot of ways. So not even solely limited to sexual harassment, you know, just this power dynamic it could just be someone being abusive in general or demeaning or treating, you know, treating you in a, in a demeaning or humiliating way. But sexual harassment is definitely one way in which it plays out. And then you talk about the, the hierarchy, the, the higher education hierarchy is funny because sometimes, you know, if you're outside of it, you can think, well, this person's the department chair. Shouldn't they be able to do something about this? Or this person's the dean. Well, you can have a dean or a department chair, uh, but then you have a particular professor who's bringing in a lot of research dollars, right? So who has more power? And that, or there's some, there are many universities where the head football coach makes twice as much as the president of the university. So who's got uh, power to hold other people accountable. Um, so the, the higher the the hierarchy in higher education can be tricky because it's not always what it appears to be if you just look at an org chart. And so that complicates things in terms of how people can be held accountable for harassment. It helps, I think, perpetuate it and keep it going. I, I totally agree with you. We we did um studies where we compared the experience of graduate students and undergraduates and, um, and specifically around their exposure to sexual violence and looked at a host of different kinds of domains of negative experience from contact sexual assault through stalking and various forms of, of harassment. And we found that for undergraduates, the rates of sexual contact abuse, so sexual assault and penetration, were alarmingly high for female students, but typically the perpetrator was another student. For graduate students, there was a a gender discrepancy still that women graduate students were more at risk for, for all these different forms of violence. But the rates of contact sexual assault for graduate students were overall pretty low. Um, but where they 
they had even higher rates than the undergraduates was for sexual and gender-based harassment perpetrated by faculty members. And I think it's exactly right. I mean, part of this is about opportunity and who's spending their time with whom, but it's largely about power and who has power. And if you think about a graduate student who is in the situation you described, there's um, one really likely mentor for that student, given her intellectual interests, her scholarly interests. And if that mentor is abusing that relationship, she's very stuck. It's also a dependency situation often, because often their fund, the student's funding is at the hands of that same person. Um, and, and so, you know, it's not only that the rates are alarmingly high, 38% of the female graduate students in our study experience some amount of gender and sexual harassment at the hands of faculty members. And that's kind of extraordinary. Um, but also the effects are really bad. So it, it's really damaging to people. And um, what to do about it? And you noted that some of these people might hold a lot of power because of the money, essentially because of the money. I mean, that's true about the coaches too, right? We're talking about money here and the power of money. And one of the things I worry about is that it's not just this. I mean, the, the potential corrupting influence of money in higher education is not given enough attention. Um, it leads people away from their missions. I mean, I worked in a public university where the mission's very clear that it's to, you know, generate knowledge and educate students and the public. But where the dollars were going was often in a very different direction and where the status would be garnered by people was often in a very different direction. Um, I, I think in the long run, we need to reform how we're collecting revenue and how we're incentivizing people um, and it won't just help when it comes to sexual and gender-based harassment. I think it's going to help with other forms of corruption in universities as well. One of the things I remark upon when I listen to your podcasts and your webinars and, and read your writing is there seems to be optimism. And I guess maybe to do this work, you have to remain optimistic. Uh, you know, you've developed a questionnaire. Um, you said we can educate people, educate institutions. And you even have this phrase, cherish the whistleblower. And again, like they all strike me as having a connotation of optimism. And if I were to describe some of the feeling in the atmosphere in medicine and in healthcare is it's one of uh, fear and one of um, concern for, say, in terms of the whistleblower, retaliation and negative consequences down the road. And so, and you've talked about this, you know, people say, well, why didn't, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you report it? Why didn't she do something? That's what HR is for. You know, these sort of um, statements that, that seem dismissive and seem blaming towards the victim, but it's not unfounded fear and unfounded consequences. So how do you balance that optimism, pessimism, act, don't act? Yeah, that, that's great. And you have sort of two questions there embedded. One is about optimism and is there a reason to be optimistic? And the other is really what to do about fear of retaliation. And, and I agree they're related, but let me look at them a little bit separately. Um, on the optimism issue, 
my sense is it's a little bit like Dorothy's slippers. You know, the idea that you've got somebody walking around with these ruby slippers and all she has to do is click them and she can get where she wants to go. I feel like we have all the tools to fix this set of our problems. Like there are problems we're facing that are really hard, but I actually think institutional behavior, institutional betrayal, and sexual violence are are fixable problems and that we have the tools. What we need to do is be educated because people are very ignorant and then have some political will to fix the problem. And an example, and now this relates to the retaliation issue and Cherish the Whistleblower, is about how we handle the person, the truth teller, the whistleblower. So the idea that you, when something bad happens or whether you're the victim or you see it, that it's safe to go report that, at some level, even though people say dismissive things, at some level, everybody experiences the fear of that when it's them. Because we all know that the messenger often gets often gets shot. We all know that if we speak out about something wrong, we may be ostracized, blamed, punished, and so on. And that occurs, that retaliation occurs at so many levels. So there can be the really overt kind, like getting fired from your job. But even if you have a way to protect people from that, it's really hard to protect them from the the more subtle forms of retaliation, not being invited to socialize, not having people make eye fixation, um, not getting the the award that somebody else gets. And those are very hard to legislate against. You can't pass a law that says you have to smile at somebody. So it it's really difficult to stop all retaliation. But what you can do is take positive action. And in general, we know and from decades of research in psychology that the best way to change behavior is not through punishment, but through reward. People are very responsive to reward. And if you think about it, what is somebody who tells a difficult truth? What do they want? They want to be heard. They want to be believed. And they want to be acknowledged, ideally. And then they hope that they'll be changed. But it's not like they're seeking, most people are not seeking any kind of material reward. They're seeking a social kind of reward. Um, And reward sounds a little funny because it's like, why is it a reward to be heard? But it, but it is. Um, and so if the institution has a policy and a practice that, that sort of reflexively acknowledges difficult truth-telling and cherishes the whistleblower, I believe it will go a long way toward making truth-telling and whistleblowing more common, and it will help the institution and ultimately will help reduce that retaliation because it will be, you know, it will be eclipsed. The good stuff will eclipse the bad stuff there. Um, so that's one example of, I think, many tools that we have. We already can do that stuff, right? We know how to acknowledge and thank and, you know, make people feel good about what they've done. It's not rocket science, we just have to make the decision to do it. I, I think one of the things is that bothers me is how much ignorance drives problems. So uh, around sexual violence, and I'm sure Kevin has run across this so much, is people just not knowing basic victim psychology. 
not understanding why victims are silent, why they're passive, why their reactions right after a traumatic event might seem bizarre, they might laugh, they might do any sort of thing. And, and then individuals who have that ignorance do damage by their dismissal of other people's experiences and how they respond to them. This is another case where we know how to educate. We know how to address this. We have the knowledge. We just need to sort of click our, click our ruby shoes and do it. You were talking about um, people wanting to be heard, right? Uh, people who've experienced um, sexual violence. And I think one of the things you see is I think that in, either in response to uh, uh, institutional betrayal or in anticipation or expectation of institutional uh, betrayal, uh, students, uh, and again, we've seen this at many universities, and it seems to come in waves. Like we had a few waves of it over the past year or two uh, at various universities, um, will decide to just bypass the university altogether in terms of engaging with, um, you know, the administrative reporting process and go on social media and say, you know, name someone as a, a rapist or, or talk about their sexual assault. And um, they form communities basically online where people uh, will then chime in and talk about their experiences or jump in to say, yeah, this is also an indication that the university is not doing anything because if they were, this person wouldn't have to go on Twitter and say that they were assaulted. They could have gone to the university Um and so some of it comes from a place of, again, maybe having, having experienced institutional betrayal. Some of it just, again, maybe from what they've heard from other people, they anticipated it, or they maybe just have a general distrust of this particular institution or institutions in general, right? You talked about that. Um, and, you know, a challenge, you know, uh, you mentioned before that every university is not approaching it in the same way, right? Um you know, some are responding and, and taking steps to prevent uh, gender-based violence uh, better than others. Um, one challenge, you know, just coming from doing Title IX work at a university is that the students who speak out publicly about their experiences, which they have every right to do and may be part of their healing process, um, they're not bound by any laws or policies related to privacy, right? It's they, they have a right to share their experiences. The university, on the other hand, we can't respond to talk about specifically what we did for that particular student. Uh, we can talk about what we're doing in general, but when it's not attached to specifics, then it, it, it can, it, it does, it's not always helpful because it, then it just sounds like more, uh, you know, gaslighting or more uh, uh, just the university saying that they're doing something that they're not doing. So um, a lot of it is just sort of the, for, from the perspective of someone, you know, doing this work at a university, we, you know, we know that it's sort of an ongoing process of building trust through education, right? And I know you've talked a bit about the need for education as opposed to just training. And I've tried to uh, really leverage both. And, and we sometimes use those terms interchangeably, but there's a difference. I'd, I'd be interested just for you to share um, what the, you know, what you see as the difference between the two, but I've always tried to leverage both because I do think, you know, both are important because training gets, you know, more to 
behavior. And sometimes, and I think particularly with faculty and staff, um, I think it's a lot more education for students. Not that we can't also educate faculty and staff, but sometimes, uh, you know, if you, if I sometimes like to think of it as, you know, training can like set the floor. And then with education, we can kind of move more toward the ceiling in terms of thinking of things in a more expansive way of changing people's uh, or impacting people's views as opposed to just uh, their behavior, which can ultimately impact views, right? But um, sometimes the floor may be the best that you're going to get at least um, temporarily in terms of, you know, maybe a faculty or staff member just needs to know that there's some accountability that if you do X, Y, Z, you may face discipline or you may lose your job. And then maybe that prompts them to think, hey, maybe I will not do this. And now maybe I'm open to thinking about why I should not do this. And that's where the the education piece comes in. But I wanted to um, hear some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, you, you, for me, touched on at least two themes that are really challenging. The first thing you were talking about was the the bind that people such as yourself and others in universities may find themselves in when there's um, students or other people making public accusations that you really can't effectively respond to and um, what to do about that. And, and probably the answer is there is nothing you can actually do when it's a particular situation other than sort of grin and bear it. I, I do think universities may not be thinking as creatively as they might about how to give people voice that leaves people feeling heard within the institution. So, um, the use of more town halls, more opportunities for people to voice their their concerns and complaints internally. Um, I've attended so many meetings at different schools, my own, but many others, um, which are described as an opportunity for the community to get together to talk about some aspect of sexual violence, but then are dominated by administrators recounting all the, the good programs and I know um, for people sitting in the room who've had bad experiences, that can feel very silencing and frustrating because no doubt they're good programs, but still something isn't right. And so, you know, another example is that when university presidents get up there and say, we don't tolerate sexual violence, when you know, you've just seen a study that, you know, 30% of people, of women are getting exposed. What's that mean to say you don't tolerate it? It's obviously at some level being tolerated. Um, and and it's not helpful to say we don't tolerate it in, in as a blanket statement. So I, I sometimes think I know what I was involved with probably the most effective university task force of my career a few years ago, where we designed a new reporting policy for sexual violence. And one of the reasons I think it worked so well is we held a series of town halls where we invited everybody, anybody, to come talk. And um, mostly it was the room was full of students, but the difference was we just let the, we just let the students talk. We didn't have a bunch of talking heads on stage. Um, we moderated it. We had called on people, but we structured it, but it was really student focused and, or whoever was in the room. And I think it, people felt heard at these events, but not only was it sort of serving that purpose, it was very educational for the rest of us. Like, oh, that's what they want. Um, and and I, so I think universities just in defensive posture forget to do this. So that, that's a sort of 
general thing um, that could be done. And then your, um, your, your next thing that you talked about, training first, thank you. We use the words interchangeably often, like we talk about graduate training and really what is usually meant there is something more like graduate education. So, so to some extent, they're synonymous words, but, um, there's some distinction in how they get used where training is often used, um, in a kind of, um, in, a, in an HR context, say, for instance, to learn a bunch of rules and do's and don'ts, um, whereas education, especially in higher education, typically references more um, more critical reasoning, um, thinking about not necessarily getting the answers, but opening the questions up and thinking deeply about issues. And especially around sexual violence, we don't have all the answers. So education seems to me uh, really important. Giving people the opportunity to not know, to, to grapple with the issues, to have some disagreements with each other, um, because there are often these conflicting values, like between the rights of the accused and the, so on. I mean, you got these honest to goodness, real um, dilemmas and letting people grapple with those. Um, one of the things I worry about a lot is the tendency to shame and blame when people, um, people are hurt and they often want to, um, blame somebody. That's very human. But in the domain of sexual violence, that tendency to shame and blame can lead to pretty bad outcomes where the underlying systemic problems aren't really being addressed and you kind of get a scapegoat, bad apple, maybe somebody truly, you know, is horrible, but their, their behaviors are, are held up by a whole system. And when the focus gets on that blame and that shame, and then gets reinforced by something like social media, I don't think it's healing. I don't think it leads us to a better place. It's not the same thing as accountability. It becomes you know, like a runaway train um, and and probably undermines the very goals that we have. Um, in education, in the ideal education, what you would do is create a space where people learn new things because there is new scholarship. There's new other forms of sort of knowledge to share with people, but you also create a space where there can be nuanced discussions, where it's safe to make mistakes, where people can ask questions. And at its, at its, you know, best, you've got, you know, great education. Universities supposedly really care about good pedagogy. Um, one of the things I have seen that's really extremely unfortunate is when something called, it's you know, called something like sexual harassment training, which is right there a funny name because it's like you don't want to train people how to sexually harass. But usually what's meant is, you know, addressing our anti-sexual harassment training, but where it actually becomes counterproductive. And I have seen that occur. And one way that can occur is by breeding cynicism. So you take, it's especially true with faculty who um, both are and like to think of themselves as highly educated, intelligent people who don't want to be spoon-fed a dumbed-down curriculum. And um, I have been forced to take some of these online training things that feel like I'm in the DMV um, being really spoken down to. And I understand why it breeds cynicism and can make things worse. We did a study where we measured people's knowledge of Title IX related information before and after they went through one of these 
programs, which by the way, are often made by insurance companies um, when they went through one of these programs. And there was no difference in the amount of knowledge. So they weren't learning anything. All that was happening was they were getting mad. <laughs> so yeah, so that, that's what I, where I you know, think that we could do better. Before we get to the Risa wrap-up, here's a word from the host and creator of Podcast Brunch Club podcast. Hey there, podcast listeners. Join us at Podcast Brunch Club. It's like book club, but for podcasts. Every month, we put together a thematic podcast playlist, and then chapters in over 70 cities across the world get together to discuss the list and swap podcast recommendations. Find out more at podcastbrunchclub.com. The Risa Wrap-Up. So as Jennifer said, we could do better. We could do so much better. And many of us are optimistic and committed to trying to help create safer, more equitable workplaces. One thing I want to bring your attention to, audience, is that Jennifer has not been immune to discriminatory behaviors in the workplace. Actually, none of us are. Earlier this year, Jennifer settled a lawsuit that she filed against the University of Oregon. This was after she learned that the university was paying her $18,000 less per year than male colleagues closest in rank to her. Ultimately, the university did agree to pay her $350,000. This is going to cover her claims for damages and her attorney's fees. Moreover, they are going to donate $100,000 to the Center for Institutional Courage. Thanks for understanding the importance of this topic, audience. We will see you next week. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.